We're in the book of Corinthians. Can you say that? Corinthians. Not Romans, Corinthians. Um, let us read the passage. Uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And he carries the argument. He's still in the midst of his argument that everything he did when he came to Corinth looked foolish to the Greek world, looked like an offense to the Jewish world, and he's going on and giving his apologetic for why he did it. And there's three things that he knows about his ministry that the world says only fools do. The first thing is he preaches a crucified Christ. They say, fool. That is nothing but foolishness. Then he begins to describe the kind of people that God not just calls but chooses. And they say, foolish, foolish. Now he's going to pick on God's method of reaching people throughout history. Believe it or not, he used a method called preachers. And you know you've got to be out of your head to use that method. Because preachers are a bunch of quacks, loud, boring, whatever. They don't compare to the Greek philosophers or the uh, rhetoricians and all the guys that knew all the ways to talk good. It's amazing how many preaching ministries have been powerfully used of God that don't impress the world. And Paul is saying, let me tell you, you weren't impressed. This is what I did, though, when I came to town. When I came to you, brothers, by the way, they were pagans when he came. They weren't brothers. They're now brothers. When I came to you pagans who became brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. If you think Paul was a dumbo, read Philippians 3 and a little bit of history to see how brilliant he really was. But he didn't rely on these things. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. So he gives this great uh, continuing argument, and he's now addressing what his ministry was like and uh, what he was like in comparison to the philosophers in Athens. I came as a preacher. And let's first of all look at the message he preached. That seems so foolish. You have to reach back. Let's just do for the review. Verse 17. I didn't come to major on being a baptizer. I came to preach the gospel. I came as an evangelist, really. I came as a good news proclaimer. Not with, uh, with words of human wisdom, not counting on it, lest the cross be emptied of its power. So when I came... I was determined to preach this message. I was not a slave to a methodology that came out of Greece. No. For the message of the cross is foolishness to the wise acres of this world, those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
Why do you stay impressed with man's wisdom when he says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise? Why should I be a slave to methodology that God is going to eliminate anyway? Don't get in love with all the fads, folks. I've seen a few of them come and go. And Paul says, I'm not in love with fashion. I'm not in love with uh, what they do in Athens. It will pass. I think about dress codes. One group says, John the Baptist is the way you ought to dress. You need camel hair kind of coats. And Jesus comes along and dresses totally different. What was it? Was there dress? No, both crowds hated the message. It's the message that Paul's in love with, not the method. And so he says, I came. I preach a crucified Christ. Uh, that which I know is folly to my listeners. I mean, I'm saying that which will make them go up in smoke. Uh, the Jews are mad. They, they said, you're preaching a scandal. This makes a stumble. You'll never get a Jewish convert by preaching that Messiah was crucified. You, don't you know anything about Jewish evangelism? And the Greeks said, if you don't learn to debate and learn sophistry as we do, you can never make it on just a naked Christ, a naked truth, as Spurgeon called him. He said, present a naked Christ. Don't doctor him up. Don't apologize for him. Christ was crucified under the Roman government. But more than that, he was God's sacrifice for your sins. He was crucified. And he never did doctor it up. Preachers are not to doctor up God and make him appealing. Just present him like he is. He's his own defense. A lion needs no defense. He needs just to be unleashed. Let him go. So he says, I didn't rely on the uh, approach. Uh, My method is, I know that what my message is like to the world, it's counterculture. Uh, It doesn't appeal to them. It's foolishness in verse 18. Uh, It's the world's method is a wisdom that God hates that will pass away. Verses 19 through 20. He says in verse 21, worldly wisdom never led anyone to God. Worldly wisdom never led anyone to God. Uh, It it never led a Jew to God. You must tell them the hardest truth they want to hear and don't want to hear, really, and that is a crucified Christ. And he says in verse 22, they're stumbling over it. The Greeks are insulted by it. But he said, the message I preached to those who are being saved, it was the power of God in verse 18. To those that are saved, it becomes God's power to unleash me from the power and the penalty of my sins. Uh, The cross saves in verse 21. A crucified Christ is the way men and women are called to salvation. So you've got two crowds. You've got the sophisticates. They don't like it. You've got the Jewish crowd. They don't like it. And these uh, off-scouring people that you don't really like anyway, they're not mighty, they're not noble, they're weak, they're not strong. They're buying it. But you know, when you're that bad off, you'll buy about anything. Look at who God's saving. Can he do better than that? And so the world just, he knows, he's aware of what the headlines are saying. He's aware of what's a buzz around Corinth. Can't you do better than this if you plan to reach us? 
And he said, I never caved in. I never changed. I know what I'm about. Now, how did he preach? He says in verse 2, I determined, I made a conscientious effort that my manner would not be based upon anything I saw at Athens. I determined I would know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Now, does that mean all he preached was the cross? Uh, I don't think so. He stayed there 18 months. And if we follow his ministry, even to Ephesus, he declared to them the whole will of God. But the core, the core of what his message was about always led to a crucified Savior. It's what Spurgeon said that the Bible, every book of the Bible, happens to be like all the roads in England. They all lead to London. And he said, every book in the Bible ultimately must lead to Christ. Uh, it is amazing. The Most of the top preachers that seem to have, I mean, the largest attendance and uh, the most impressive uh, programming. Uh, I've watched some of them, and you would never find Christ in the message. Motivational positive thinking, uh, oh, moralisms, uh, maybe jokes, uh, positive potential, anything but the gospel. Brian Chapel, the president of Covenant Seminary, he played a sermon one day for his students in class of a local preacher, very popular radio preacher, and he had the guys listen to it and critique it, and they begin to rave. Boy, that's good. Ooh, that's, man, that's practical. Oh, that's nice. And just kept on, and great reviews, and they were kind of wowed as they heard it. That's why he was on the radio every day. And then all of a sudden, Chapel said, Are you aware that this man is a cult member? Are you aware that he denies the deity of Christ? Are you aware of the fact that there's no blood atonement in his message? No risen Christ. He's just full of religious quips and talk. And you guys have been taken in. You think it's great because you got used to it. No Christ, no cross, no salvation. But, oh, I love it. It tickles my ears. It gives me little uh, insights on life and how to have a greater attitude about myself, realize my potential, how to treat my kids, my husband. Is there any cross in it? None. And he said, this is why I'm teaching you men. Christ must be central. And Paul said, my manner is you will find Christ smack dab in the middle of everything I preach and teach. A Christless religion and Christless Christianity is no Christianity. The core of our message is a crucified, risen Christ. Don't get tired of it. And, and don't get this attitude. Oh, some, well, I, I, I'm growing in grace and I've passed that up. You never pass up the cross. You never will outgrow it. You start comprehending, and you really quit comprehending what starts happening. It is still a little trite, little reading, and you whip through it. You will finally come to be in awe of it. That's what's lost in much church life. The awe is gone. Nobody says, ah, 
Oh, we've got kids saying, awesome, man. What, peanut butter? I don't use awesome of anything but God. He creates the awe. So many people, they're bored with God. You know why they're bored? What they've heard about him would bore you. Once you know him, you get over being bored. He's bigger than anything you've ever thought of. He's higher than you've ever thought of. He's incomprehensible. You wouldn't know anything about him except what he chose to reveal because you could never get your hands around him. He's above the sphere of the earth. He counts all the stars. He said, if you cut every tree in Lebanon and you killed every bull in Bashan, you couldn't make an offering big enough to measure up to how great he is. So don't even try, Israel. I'm bigger than anything you can do. Your temple can't contain me. Solomon, on the day he dedicated the temple and the cloud filled the place, said, I can't build a place big enough to contain my God. He's no local deity as the gods of the ancient Near East. This God inhabits eternity. This God is infinite. I can't get my hands around him. No, you can't. He's bigger. He's better. See, that's... You must know this. I don't come to church to help God out. I didn't come here today so he can get praise. Did you know what? God's been being praised by spirit beings for a long time. And if you never say thank you or how great God is being surrounded, his throne is full. We're just going to join the choir when we get there. And going to add your poor little old voice. Can you imagine that you add much? You don't add much. You're the discord. It took a glorified body to give some of you pitch. <laughs> get in. Get in line. He is great. He is not starving for us to praise him. Like, I, I'll feel bad today if I don't. No, 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 no. He floods our heart so that the overflowing heart can do nothing but praise him. But, see, we only ascribe the glory that is His. We don't make Him glorious. He is glorious. We finally catch on. We start ascribing to Him what He's really worth. And here Paul, when he said, I came to town, I'm not a politician nor a philosopher. I got something that empties the tomb. I've got something that's going to rule the nations. I'm not in town like a beat-up guy that has nothing to say. My one message will slay every Greek philosophy. This message will outlast them all. Somebody quote me something that Plato said. Go. I don't hear you. What about Aristotle. Euripides. Come on, you know Euripides. You read him a lot. Where are they? Or what about uh, guys that drink the hemlock so they can kill themselves? What about Camus, that brilliant man that committed suicide? What about Jean-Paul Sartre, big existentialist that committed suicide? Where are, where is their philosophy? Who was saved by it? Their own philosophy killed them. But we've seen thousands and millions saved at the preaching of the cross of a crucified Savior. This is, this is what he's saying. Then he says to them, I came to you in weakness, in fear, and with much trembling. My, he could have wrote all of this and not put that verse in. This seems odd. Why? Why do you put that verse in? I came with you in weakness. And the word weakness there means no strength. 
uh, it was translated not being equal to the task. Um, he didn't have the strength to get the job done. Not adequate in himself to preach to a bunch of pagans and see them saved. Um, and then he said he came with fear and trembling. Now MacArthur takes the view he couldn't have been intimidated at all because he always taught Christians be bold, be brave, and be in there for God. But it's interesting when you read uh, Acts 18, uh, God the Son shows up to him in a dream to tell him not to be afraid. So he was afraid of something. When you get Jesus off the throne and come down and give you a personal visit and tell him, he says, you stay in Corinth. He's probably afraid he's going to be killed. He'd already been stoned at Lystria, went up to Derby, went up to Iconium, bleeding, looked bad. Just think of uh, recovery when there's no doctor to attend to you when you get a stoning, how he must have looked. And so when I came to you, uh, by the time I got to Corinth, I got to tell you, I sensed my own inadequacy. Uh, I was fearful of my mission to this extent that I trembled. How can I make a difference to such pagan, swept-away minds? I don't have a chance in a thousand. I keep little quotes in my Bible. This is James Denny, 1800s. I hardly read anybody that writes today. It's too much fluff. No one who saw the exceeding greatness of the power which the gospel exercised, not only in sustaining its preachers under persecution, but in transforming human nature and making bad men good, no one who saw this and looked at a preacher like Paul could dream the explanation lay in him. Not in an ugly little Jew, they called him that in Second Corinthians 10, of no countenance. Without eloquence, without presence, without the means to bribe or compel, could the source of such courage, the cause of such transformations be found. It must be sought not in him but in God. He says, I want you to know the greatness of our message doesn't depend on the greatness of the preacher. We're a bunch of weak, trembling, at times fearful, clods of clay. Second Corinthians said three different times in the Bible, Paul used a henna clause, purpose clause. I came to you in weakness in order that the power may be God's and not mine. We come, we, got, we have this treasure of the gospel in earthen containers so that God may show the power is not in Paul. Paul saves no one. Billy Graham saved no one. I can save no one. See, a preacher cannot turn a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. A preacher cannot rent the veil. A preacher cannot make you go from uh, animosity, stubbornness, and lostness. And in a moment, the light breaks through and you say, why have I been rejecting this Christ? Paul said, all I offered was availability and weakness. What you Corinthians believed was not the strength of a preacher, but the power of the gospel. That's what he's trying to say. I see people preach a religion. 
they're all into preachers. Uh, preachers. Preachers. And when you talk to them, they're all about the preacher, about this one. Name, name. When do you get to Christ? Who saved you? And they leave churches. And they drop out of Christianity over preachers. He failed me. He disappointed me. Well, you shouldn't have let him save you. Get over it. Us preachers are just men saved by the grace of God. Believe in our message if we preach the gospel. But please don't make gods out of us. I was with a woman on jury duty, and she said, You know you're a god, don't you? I said, oh, Really? And she said, Yeah. I said, Well, two things you don't know. One, you don't wash my underwear. And two, you don't know my wife. You would change your view of me quickly. I'm just a man. Don't have to be anymore. I can't believe how much pressure there is on guys that want to be preachers to please everybody and be poured into an image. Oh, no, 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 no. The best we get of men are they're still just men. Ain't no preacher can save you. So get over it. Matter of fact, you ought to pray that they're full Blown weakness is not manifested, or you would scream to high heaven, how could I even hear such a guy? McGee has often said that on radio. If you knew me like I know me, you'd turn off the radio. And if I knew you like you know you, I wouldn't even want to be in the same room maybe with you. Who knows? Let's get over man-centeredness, is what Paul's saying. You Corinthians were saved by my message. Not by my greatness. And this is why the greatest component of true preachers is earnestness, sincerity, and an overwhelming sense of humility. Who can find a humble preacher? Who can find a preacher that still weeps over the lostness of people? You don't need an orator this morning. You don't need the best speakmaker in the world. You need a man of God that the Spirit of God can animate him to preach Christ crucified. And you come to see when the Spirit works that the visible man becomes invisible. And all of a sudden you say, I see Christ for the first time. That's what we need. But I am amazed. You know, uh, us guys just took a uh, uh, class on Logos 4 with Lebronics. I never caught up with uh, Logos 3. There's so much info in this one system of Logos. Bible study helps. Information. And I thought as the man was showing these incredible things that you can do with software and Bible study and all the hours that can save a guy from cracking books and just fantastic, the info, the info, the info. And I thought, you know, with all that information, you still don't have anybody preaching. With all that information, there's still no power of God in it until God ignites a man to preach. You know, we could next just get up here and push a button and have a computer sermon go to you. I'm sure the grammar would be edited. Everything would be just right. And because God doesn't anoint machines, he anoints weak people. And this is what Paul's saying. He wants these Corinthians to get us. I didn't save you. I came into town. I was unimpressive. When Dwight L. Moody went to uh, London, here's a Yankee, uneducated, 
was a, an aggressive businessman for sure. And uh, the first time he ever taught uh, in Chicago, in Hell's Kitchen in Chicago, uh, the way he even found out he could teach is he paid people to teach Sunday school to ruffian boys that tried to beat him up at times and uh, were very rough. But he hired these people, uh, hired buildings out. He was just funding everything. And one day the Sunday school teacher didn't make it. And he had a bunch of these boys because he, he would get them there with prizes and gifts. I mean, he, he knew how to appeal to them. He was a businessman, a promoter. But this day the teacher doesn't show up. And so he teaches and God saves a bunch of these kids. And that's how he finds out maybe I could teach the Bible. And from there he winds up going to London. Now here's a guy that says can't, ain't, and a lot of other stuff that drove the English badly. He just talks like a Yankee, uneducated, rough tumble man in a cattle town like Chicago in the 1800s. And nobody in sophisticated London is going to dare hear a country bumpkin. But he comes and he preaches and he preaches. I think he preached every night for three months in London. Every night. He winds up going all over England. And R.W. Dale, one of the great theologians, you can get his book on the atonement still, was a brilliant theologian and a part of the Anglican church, pastored uh, in London for 20 years. He said, I went and I heard Moody. I saw the revival that was sweeping London. I saw the results. And by the time I met the man, I couldn't see any connection between the man and with what was going on. They didn't match. He was just a plain man. But we were seeing London turned upside down by a Yankee that didn't have any degrees out of Cambridge or Oxford, didn't know Hebrew or Greek. He just knew the Savior and could preach to a common man. And God was turning the place upside down. And I just thought as I was taking this seminar, you know what I crave when I go to hear a man preach? I'm looking for the power of God to do something education can't do. I'm looking for the power of God to sweep through that man's soul with an earnestness, a fire, and a compassion. You can't buy it. You can't educate it. And you can't get enough software to get it. You get it usually by hanging out with God alone. And that's what the church today has so little of. You're so in, used to being entertained, so used to being a little placebo here and a little there. And keep it funny, keep it light. Uh, let me go to hell here in good sermons. Please don't talk to me about heaven and hell. And yet, I was reading John Piper who said, the life of a preacher and especially a pastor, is a life of desperate dependence. He writes, all genuine preaching is rooted in a feeling of desperation. You wake up Sunday morning and you could smell the smoke of hell on one side and feel the crisp breezes of heaven on the other. You go to the study and you look down at your pitiful manuscript and you kneel down and cry, God this is so weak. Who do I think I am? What, what audacity to think in three hours. He gets up three hours before the preaching so I can pray. 
What do I think that in three hours my words will be the odor of death and the fragrance of life? My God, who is sufficient for these things? And so you preach, uh, even as I do, I preach to this congregation. I have some people who have been hearing me 30 years in this church preach who are still unsaved, still unsaved. So what I need is more compliments. What I need is to be told I'm a great preacher. No, I keep saying, God, why don't you save them? I preach, I prepare, and there's some people in my own congregation could sit under my own preaching and remain as hard as a stone, remove, remain unchained, uh, put in their hour, Get out of here. Why do they even come? And if they die now, they'll go to hell after hearing me preach 30 years. And I'm impressed with me. I can't soften a stony heart. I can't rent the veil that blinds men that says, I'd rather go to hell over my favorite sin than I would to come to a Christ who was crucified. Would I not say with Paul in 2 Corinthians, Who is adequate for these things? Who has the competency to save these young people? Our men, our pastors will be teaching young people in the next hour from broken homes, drugs, alcohol, sex, all of it. And yet they will be like wind in a paper bag if the Spirit of God doesn't do something they can't do. Because we're powerless in and of ourselves. And Paul says, you know. When I came to town, I'm pulling back the curtain on what was going on in the preacher. I came feeling my inadequacy. I came with fear. I came with trembling. It's no fun to preach to people who are never moved or never changed. And you go away, especially if you're unsaved. Boo, we're glad you're done. Get out of here. Bring us a philosopher. We want to go to a Grateful Dead concert. Bring on the Rolling Stones. That's what meets my needs. Everything you said was garbage. That's, what, that's why, you know what? Desperate churches have turned into power prayer houses. Someone asked Spurgeon, what, is the, what, what do you attribute the greatness of your ministry to? He said, my people pray for me. See, churches today, I was with a guy here the other day he, in the Bay Area. He's in a fellowship of 135 churches. And as we had lunch, I said, well, tell me about it. He's looking for a pastor. I said, and how is it going? He said, 90% of them are either plateaued or in decline. 135, do the math. He said, they're either plateaued or dying. So we've got 90% of all Bay Area churches in this fraternity of churches, he said, that are ineffective, dying, and there's no power evident in their ministry. They're fighting over the budget, and they're declining and rearranging chairs in a sinking ship, but there's no work of God that seems to be moving in them. They've died. Have you ever attended a dead church? I've been in them. Sometimes I had to preach to them. Listen to what Samuel Stevenson said. He wrote these words when he saw the deadness of the churches around him. He wrote this little poem. A city full of churches, great preacher, lettered men, grand music, choirs, organs. If these all fail, what then? 
good workers, eager, earnest, who labor hour by hour. But where, oh, where, my brother, is God's almighty power? Refinement, education, they want the best. Their plans and schemes are perfect. They give themselves no rest. They give the best of talent. They try their uttermost. But what they need, brother, is God the Holy Ghost. And some of you don't even know what he said because you've never tasted of it. You don't know the difference of a Holy Ghost meeting and just a man up there with the best of education and the best of intention, and you're as dry as last year's bird nest. There are so many boring preachers that can bore you with God, with Christ. They are just boring. They're not exciting. There's no earnestness. There's nothing but a monotone and a powerlessness, and they just drone. And they've got congregations that just sleep. Just be comfortable, and please keep it short. Because nothing's going on anyway. Paul says, I want you to know, I'm aware of my own weakness and incapability. And so, the church throughout its history, God has seen fit to use weak men, weak men, sick men. You can't believe the sicknesses that some of them have had and the infirmities they've carried in their body. But then he said, why is it so? What, what, was the, uh, uh, w- what makes the difference? He says, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Ah, I had something the philosophers didn't have. I had the power of God. The power of the Holy Spirit demonstrated his power, when I was among you, and the very fact that you've been saved, somebody rent the veil, somebody made you understand the gospel, someone broke the chains that bound you. And he said, what I had and what I came in was the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, when he comes, he will not speak of himself, but he'll take the things of Christ and show them to you. Oh, I must say, true preaching is holy Ghost empowered preaching. Weak men energized by the Spirit of God. And he says this what was demonstrated was the Holy Spirit. And this word dunamis, the power of God, was uh, powerful, inherently capable to achieve whatever needs to be done. What the preacher cannot do, the Spirit of God can do. But what does he use? A weak man preaching a crucified Christ. And he said, There's my message. And I am but the man, but the power, the miracle of all true ministry. I wonder if our Sunday school teachers think they need the help of the Holy Spirit. Uh, It's amazing how much stuff you can do in church and never think you need the Holy Spirit. You, You can't even overcome sin today without the Holy Spirit, right? Guess what? Even on Valentine's, you can't love her like she ought to be loved unless God fills you with the Spirit. You can put a lip lock, honey, but you can still act like a bear. It takes the Spirit of God to change your insides. The world knows how to kiss. They don't know how to love like the Spirit of God produces in you. Why did God do it this way? So that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom. 
but on God's power. In order that. Why? I think God could take an old fisherman boy that everybody would say a bimbo. And they said, aren't you ignorant men? That's what they thought of Peter. One sermon, 3,000 saved. Have any of you preached one sermon and see 3,000 saved? In one day. And he never had homiletics. He never took theology 101. He just got up and spoke. And you look at it. Come on, it's Acts 2. You can read it in less than three minutes. Come on. He's just quoting the prophets and said, what you see here is really God. And he said this is going to happen. And Joel is pouring out the Spirit. And if you don't repent and accept this when you just crucified, you're going to perish. But if you believe in him, we're ready to baptize you. We'll baptize you in his name. And 3,000 got saved. Man, I wish it was that easy. I make up in preparation sometimes. I get prepared till I'm blue in the face if the Spirit of God does not. All, that's all I can do is pray and prepare. And every service is a romance to me. I never know what's going to happen. Sometimes when I'm the most hurried and when I'm the most frazzled and when I've seen the most people in the hospital and when I'm carrying the heaviest load, God does more than when I'm much more prepared and I'm about to decide it, just wing it. Because he does it anyway. But you know what I find out? He says, prepare. You gather the wood. I'll send the fire from heaven. All I do is gather the wood. Ignite me, Lord. Because people will come and watch a man burn. It's such a cold age. And uh, I just ask you, uh, who saved you? I ask these questions. Have you put your faith in a crucified Christ instead of a denomination or some red-hot teacher? Don't let us men be the object of your faith. Let us point you to the Lamb of God. That's what we want to do. And you see, if you'll fall in love with Him, you'll treat me great because we're brothers. I don't ask to be carried on pedestal around here, but just treat me like a brother. I'm in the family, and you are too. And if you're not today, it's Christ you need. It's Christ. Don't come up and see if I've got bad breath. I guarantee you I do. Man, if I didn't have deodorant, brush my teeth, gargle, man, you've got to do a lot to smell good. Which is rotten to the core. It's Christ that you need. It's Christ. Would you pray for a weak preaching staff? Every pastor we've got around here would go to hell if God would have left us alone. And none of us are great preachers. I don't think we even aspire. I don't even aspire to be great. If I could show you a great Savior, that would be enough. Who, what's great about a man who is headed for a grave and has all the... You see, when I hear... I've seen people... I've been around the church 50 years. I've been running with preachers for 50 years. I started preaching in 59. So what? I'm in my 51st year. I've been catching buses and preaching since I was 15. I got kidnapped once because I hitchhiked, and three guys grabbed me and wanted to take me to a house of prostitution and corrupt a 15-year-old boy, but I escaped. I've preached all over this country. I've hitchhiked. And that's why anybody come up to me and say, well, I'm burning to preach. Oh, no, you're not. You're just hoping you get up here on Sunday morning. 
you, you, you got to be burning like I was burning to want to preach. I preached in storefronts. I preached on streets. I preached anywhere I could preach. I preached to the three guys that kidnapped me. I got them to sit down. I said, you're not supposed to preach in Vallejo tonight before you kidnap me because you're all semi-drunk and you can all beat me up. You're big men. And you're going to a house of prostitution. But I said, let me just share with you the points. And I started sharing the points, got them real comfortable, made a break for the door, and thank God it was unlocked. I got out. <laughs> or else I'd been dead meat. One block from where I lived is where they lived. One block. 20 years old, I took my bride to Haiti. We preached in Port-au-Prince. We preached at Cape Haitian. 20 years old, we stayed in banana plantation fields and watched rats run on the uh, uh, open brush arbors there in Cape Haitian and heard the voodoo drums going. This was a honeymoon. Carolyn's never got over it. She's been a nervous wreck ever since. <laughs> no, 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 no. No. Do you want to preach? Do you want to make this known? Or do we have to beg you and pamper you? No, the credentials of the New Testament preacher were scars, not notoriety. It was suffering. It was not their salary. It was not how many people packed the building. They preached anywhere, any place. You could not shut them up in houses, on corners. And I see so many waiting for an opportunity. A lost world is your opportunity. Get busy. Start telling them. You saints in the pews, instead of being frozen and bored with sermons, when will you become obedient and do the word? You know, we're headed towards Easter. People go back to church at Easter and Christmas more than any other time. We ought to be three to four services by now. But you've got to become my evangelist. They won't come for me. They'll come for you. They come, more people, 85% of people who visit a church come because a family member or friend invited them. Let me ask you, who do you invite to come to church with you? Now, your wife doesn't count. Who do you invite? Well, uh, I don't want to bother them. You don't want to bother someone going to hell? The house is on fire. When do we get desperate? We're not desperate. We're sleepy. We're addicted to pleasure entertainment and ease and we have no suffering in our Christianity that's why the church in America needs missionaries from other countries to come and tell us how it used to be what a church on fire looks like God give us our first love how did you act when you first got saved when you first met Christ what's he saying I know the gospel seems foolish I know a crucified Christ is not appealing I know you're not impressed with all the bumpkins that God loves and chose and made his own. Not all of us have not gone to school. There's a lot of well-trained minds that are Christians. But compared to the world, we're unimpressive. We know that. Our buildings, this building, see, I, I, I thank God for this because I was in a Holy Ghost dance hall. I've been in the Rio Theater. I've met in the dumpiest places in town. You must be out of your mind. Yeah, we'll preach Christ anywhere we can get a building. That was our attitude. This is just over and beyond. Thank God. And as I get older, some young guys are going to come in here and say, couldn't they have built it a little bit bigger, a little bit nicer? And out of my grave, I will come back to choke him. <laughs> say, where were you when we were there? Where were you back there? Where were you when we set up the chairs and taught on dirt floors? And people came and they got saved because the attraction was not the building or the preacher, but a crucified Christ that could save you. That is the difference. That's the thing. 
Well, I would say this. Don't let your weakness, don't let your weakness prevent you from being used of God. I welcome you to the fellowship of the weak. I have to say, when you're a kid preacher, I start out knowing I couldn't do it. When you're 15, surely you can't have a big ego when you think you're going to be a preacher and you can, all you've been good at is cussing. I could cuss you good at 14. Man, I was good at it. You grow up in the projects, you learn how to cuss, fight, and steal. That's how I grew up in South Richmond. I didn't mind hitting you. Matter of fact, I kind of liked it because I'd been bullied on so much it felt good as you got older to smack somebody and see him tremble. The kid was real young that I hit, but it felt good. <laughs> see? And then all of a sudden, you're going to preach. Who oh, are we kidding? And you know what? I've never got over the total sense of inadequacy from 15 to 65. I'm just as incapable today to fulfill the mission as when I started. If there's no Holy Ghost, if there's no empowering, if there's no Spirit of God, I want out. I'm not able. But I have found as I wait on God, I've exchanged my weakness for His power. And lo, after these many years, I'm still burning to preach the Christ I started to preach at 15 years of age. Because He's a great Savior. He's a great Savior.